so much, Phyllis. Well, I'd love you to imagine something that might be very hard for evangelists to imagine. Imagine that you're off on the next bank holiday Monday. Uh, you might say, what? Bank holiday Monday? Off? Never had such a thing in my life. I think it might be heresy. But uh, imagine that you were off and you decided to go to uh, Southend or uh, Blackpool or Scarborough, one of my own favorite resorts. And as you're walking along uh, with your bag of chips or with your ice cream, um, you notice a group of guys coming towards you. And you say to your wife or whoever's with you, I think that's the elders from the church at Ephesus. It is. There's two or three more there. And there's over there, that's more of them. Remember, we were in Ephesus and we saw... They made us welcome. And these guys, I know who they are. They're the elders at the church at Ephesus. Now, you would have to have been doing this not at the next bank holiday, but 2,000 years ago. And you would have needed to have been in not Southend or Blackpool or Scarborough or Great Yarmouth or Bournemouth uh, to please Andy, but you would have had to have been in Miletus. And that really happened. We just read about it there. Paul had sent for the elders to come to Miletus to save him having to go up to to. Ephesus itself, and they're now going to spend a few precious moments with Paul as he talks to him, to, to them about the legacy of his gospel ministry, as he goes certain of uh, his ministry coming to an end, and as he wants to really press into these guys the nature of the ongoing pattern for the ministry of the gospel in the churches, and particularly in this case. In Ephesus. Now, if you and I had had that experience, if be, as we'd been walking along, we bumped into these guys and they told us why they were there and who they were going to meet, we probably would have pled with them for the opportunity just to come and stand at the back, just to be a fly on the wall and hear what Paul said. And wonderfully, we don't need to try and imagine what that's like. Phyllis has just read it to us. We have this wonderful record of what Paul said and what look under the power of the Holy Spirit recorded and makes part of his record here of all that Jesus continues to do and teach in the book of Acts. And as we find our bearings with it, straight off we discover that Paul was concerned about what was to happen. Interestingly, not what was about to happen to him, but what was about to happen to this gospel church in Ephesus. That verse 28, glance at it with me, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these guys are the elders to care for the church of God, which you obtained with his own blood. We, we can't avoid seeing here how extremely precious the local church is to the Lord Jesus. Paul had poured himself out to keep them strong and safe, but he is so struck by the fact that they are the blood bought fellowship of God, that his son shed his blood for his people. And and I know, and you know, if we were speaking frankly, how frustrating and painful and disappointing life can at seasons and times be in the local church. And it wouldn't be very beneficial, but we've all had knocks and blows and hurts and all the rest of it. We've all dealt with misunderstandings and all kinds of miserable things that have crept in. And part of the reason for that is that the the church, including your local church, is 
part of the most precious thing in the world. There is nothing else for which the Lord Jesus shed his blood. So there is no treasure, there is no institution, there is no amazing place of learning or, or academia or the arts or industry. There is nothing on the face of the earth more precious than the blood-bought people of the living God. And that's why so many of the attacks come. That's why so much of the pain can be experienced there. And Paul knew all about that. And yet he reminds us here of how precious the local church is. Now they were in danger, clear and present danger to use that phrase, by really what the military statisticians would call a pincer movement. There was going to be an attack from outside and inside. First of all, from the outside, Paul said, you have to watch for the wolves. I know that after my departure, so after the season of apostolic witness and authority has finished, which is where we live now, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, these are not physical attacks on people or buildings such as happening in the north of Nigeria or India or Uh, many other places around the world today. It's not physical attacks. These are attacks on the word. I I take it that Paul is defining wolves in the way that the Lord Jesus did in Matthew 7. Do you remember Jesus said, beware of the false prophets or false preachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So some people, when they hear that, say, oh, well, thank goodness, that's not so bad. It's not an actual attack. It's not an actual terrorist attack that's going to happen. But actually, the Lord Jesus is much more concerned about this. This will be a much more dangerous thing for the church, even than physical attacks. When his word is maligned and mishandled. So these guys are false teachers who arrive in from outside the fellowship and they get some kind of opportunity. They're given a platform We've heard so much about that from David in recent days. And they devour churches through false teaching. So Paul is putting the elders on alert. Don't be nicey-nicey, who just has everybody who wants to say something. Be cautious. Examine the gospel. Examine what's being said. Think carefully. Listen carefully. Doug Wilson says, very interestingly, the shepherd who will not fight the wolves does not love the sheep. The shepherd who loves to fight simply for the love of fighting is a shepherd with disordered affections. And the shepherd who hates the wolves because he loves to hate is himself a wolf. Very striking. So the danger will be external, but also internal. Verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things or distorting things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, to admonish everyone with tears. Now, Paul warns them that the devourers, the fierce wolves, will attack from the outside to consume the flock. And the twisters, you've got the devourers from the outside, you've got the twisters from the inside, who twist again like we did last summer, and they will arise... They will arise from the inside to confuse the flock. So the external devourer is going to try to devour. The external twister is going to try to confuse. 
And that's why Paul went to the trouble of assembling the elders from the church at Ephesus for one last time. He wants them to know what are the hallmarks of true gospel ministry. And he shares it with them by talking about what is really his own legacy. So that these brothers will be able to spot the false teachers and the truth twisters when they appear. And so notice with me, friends, three keys to the gospel ministry as we find them from Paul's legacy here this morning. Number one, notice with me, please, the consistency of his gospel ministry. As he talks to them about his life and ministry, Paul isn't bragging. I don't need to tell you that. But what is he doing? He's building a defense around these elders who are going to have to tough it out in his absence now. He's reminding them of the consistency of his gospel work among them so that they will embrace this pattern for themselves. And I think there are three very striking things he says that really uphold this idea of consistency. Number one, you can see that Paul says he served the whole time. Back to verse 18, he says that when, when, the, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. So that's where I get the simple idea. He just served the whole time. Paul spent three years working in Ephesus, and he did the same thing from beginning to end. Now, that doesn't mean he only ever did one thing. Of course, there was multiple strands to his ministry. One of the joys of the Fellowship of Evangelistic Workers is the proliferation of gospel ideas. And the entrepreneurship, it's been thrilling. And I'm taking loads of this information back to CEM, and I can't wait to tell them all the things that you're doing. So there was loads going on in Ephesus But he saw himself as committed to one thing, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. That was the big driver for him from the first day until the end. He just served the Lord the whole time that he was there. And I think that really speaks to me because, I don't know about you, but I find it's very possible as we get into things, as we get into ministry, as we get into new ideas, as we get into new opportunities, it's very easy for this glorious Lord Jesus just to slightly shrink in the picture. And for me to be so overwhelmed by this great opportunity, which is for him, but he actually shrinks. Now Paul says, in that sense, the Lord was front and center every day. He served the whole time. And he did so, verse 19, with humility. Interesting that the more he served the Lord, the humbler he felt. The longer he served did not give him a sense of independence from the Lord, of swagger in his ministry, of, I've got this now. I've been doing this for so many years, I could do it with my eyes closed. No, he served with humility. He never got to the point of feeling proud of himself. And I find it very striking to see how he speaks about the fact that he served with tears and with trials. It's possible to serve the Lord Jesus with your tears of disappointment. It's possible to serve him in the trials that you're facing. We touched last night on the agony of gospel workers whose 
family don't seem to be going on with the Lord. But it's possible to serve the Lord in that trial. And one of the things I should have said last night, I meant to say was, never forget when the seed has been sown. Trust the Lord with that. Pray. Make sure it has been sown. Make sure there are no particular blockages that are preventing an understanding of the gospel and pray and work towards that. But when the seed has been sown, as was said to me years ago, we don't the farmer doesn't dig it up every five minutes to see how it's getting on. Who knows what God will do over time? So we can serve with tears and we can serve with trials and we can serve with that spirit of humility. That was the thing that Paul said, first of all, in the consistency of his ministry. He served the whole time. Secondly, he preached the whole truth. That verse 18 is the overarching phrase, you yourselves know, now we jump down to verse 20, you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And we talked about this the other day, didn't we? And notice that same determination there in verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here we have the unshrinkable Apostle Paul. And it's very good to see. It's, it's actually a, a really helpful, instructive word picture, this idea of shrinking and not shrinking. You see, the plots and the attacks were ultimately designed to intimidate Paul so that he would shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. So that he would go up to the line and know what he ought to say and just find it a little bit too hot and just slightly ease back. And you can hear people doing that in their preaching. You can actually hear it. You think, oh, he's coming in for a landing this time. No, he's gone round again. <laughs> Here he comes. He's going to put it down in the numbers. Oh, no, no, he's gone. He's, he's, he's done a touch and go. He's away again. But don't we know that temptation? To shrink. From declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I I don't want to be like that. The enemy wants to stop the whole truth going to the whole world. So, just as we overview this and as we summarize, we learn that the church is under attack from devourers and twisters, but also by implication, the church is actually being weakened by shrinkers who organized 1910 missionary conventions and lots of other things since and find comfortable ways of engaging with the world while all the time they're shrinking back from that loving but wholehearted declaration of the whole counsel of God. So there are some who twist the truth of the gospel. There are others who don't twist the truth, but they just shrink back from declaring the whole helpful counsel of God. Interesting, wasn't it, that Paul said, I only wanted to do what was helpful, which was everything God says. Everything he says is helpful. And Paul wanted them to know that. The shrinkers know what God says all right. But they can't bear themselves to actually say it. They fear upsetting people. They fear being unpopular. They fear being criticized. They fear being cancelled. And that's what makes people shrink back. And it is a massive temptation in our day. So, one of the ways we fight that temptation is to think about texts like this. And say in our hearts, Lord, by your grace... 
by your grace alone, not by any summoning of character or personality or any kind of human boldness. That's not going to get us anywhere. But by your grace, help us not to be shrinkers because the mark of the authentic gospel ministry is unshrinking, consistent declaration of God's entire word. This is the consistency. He, he, he served the whole time. He preached the whole truth. Thirdly, you'll notice, I love this for evangelists, he reached the whole town. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And the guys who do such remarkable work on the doors must love a verse like that. He went door to door. And when he was chucked out of one door, is it Acts 18, he went next door and picked up where he'd left off. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Massive differences between these people. But the one message, repentance towards God. For the Jews, you need to repent towards God. For the Gentiles, you need to repent towards God and have faith in our Lord Jesus. He worked in a deeply divided community, as many of us do. But he knew that one gospel fits all. And isn't it great to know that you will never meet a human being to whom the gospel doesn't apply. There is no such thing as a human being from anywhere on the planet, from any background, from any culture. There is no such thing as a human being who does not need to repent towards God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jew or Greek, Sunni or Shia, Catholic or Protestant, Yorkshire or Lancashire. It's all the same. Every one of us needs to repent and know the grace of God. And that was Paul's message. Now I must hurry on. So that, there's something of his consistency. Then he talks about the cost of true gospel ministry. Notice how Paul's love of the Lord and the gospel, that love has massive practical implications for his day-to-day aspirations. Drop down to verse 33 for a moment there. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. If you are on the uh, Gloria Deal Trust at the moment making your application, you might want to close your phone and come back for this little point here. The implication would be that he didn't have much silver or gold for himself. Yet he could go from house to house and no doubt some of the houses he went to, there was evidence of great wealth, of people living very comfortable lives, And yet, the impression we get from this text is that he could go and deal with that and it didn't seem to get to him. It seems that he was never in awe of wealth. He was impervious to the kind of longings that drive so much of our culture. Now, that wasn't a personality thing. That was a gospel thing. This is the kind of thing that, that I pray for myself. I'm always very impressed when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, and he says in verse 14, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. Do you ever have that horrible feeling that people think we only want to talk to them because they think we think they've got something we want? A horrible feeling. And Paul was able to say, I seek not what is yours. I'm not interested in what you have. I'm not interested in your silver and gold primarily. 
If the Lord does a work in someone's life and frees that up for the work of the gospel and joyfully they give it to the work of the gospel, praise God, that's for him. But Paul was not going in on that basis. And he goes on to say to the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So he was not on the take, he was on the give. Back to Acts 20, verse 34. You know yourselves that these hands, and he must have lifted up his hands to the Ephesian elders as they, as they sat there. He couldn't have, surely he couldn't have said that sentence without showing them these big gnarled hands that had been making tents. You know yourself that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And we know that Paul worked to pay for his own ministry. He worked to pay for the ministry of his colleagues in Ephesus. And he actually says in verse 35, this was a disgrace and should never happen. No, he doesn't. He says, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And there are circumstances and there are places in which there will be no initial gospel work done unless the workers are prepared to pay for their own ministry. Can I tell you, Sister, brother, if you're a bivocational gospel worker, if you earn your living in some normal way in order to pay for your ministry, not for a millisecond ought you to think that you are in a lower level of significance than those who are in full-time paid gospel work. You're right up there with the Apostle Paul. These hands. A glorious thing. And there is a cost to the work of the gospel. There was lots of places he went and saw lifestyles that he didn't have. There was lots of hours he worked into the night to pay for that ministry, much of which wasn't immediately appreciated. Oh yeah, there is a cost to this. We've got to do the thinking. We're not being romantic about this. But there is also such gain from this cost. Again, verse 35, in all this, in, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must, we must help the weak. And we must remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't this completely at odds with how most people live? Millions of people think, obviously, that getting stuff is the key to happiness, which of course it isn't. No matter what they get, they're no happier. But nonetheless, there is something addictive about an acquisitive lifestyle. And getting more seems to promise joy. And yet Paul says it's the complete opposite. He says the Lord Jesus spoke about a happiness and a joy on a whole new level. Gaining by giving. Gaining by giving. The man who was preaching the night my brother and I got saved had served the Lord as a missionary in the end for 70 years in Brazil. Uh, he'd come originally from Northern Ireland. Uh, he lost his wife on the, on the boat on the way out. She died um, and arrived at the mission station. And of course in these days uh, there was no communication. And so the whole mission team had come out to meet them as a couple. And he had to go off the boat on his own, explain to them that a couple of days earlier as they sailed up the interior uh, in towards Manaus in Brazil, uh, his wife had died. He had to carry her off the boat himself and dig her grave and bury her and leave her there and get her on the boat. And um, It was such a remarkable story. But 
often we had Fred to stay with us when he came back to Scotland. And one of the things, he's with the Lord now, but one of the things I always remember him saying is, I have given up nothing for the Lord Jesus. I've given up nothing. I've been immeasurably enriched. And he had the same wee suit and borrowed a car to do the runabout that he had to do in, in giving reports and preaching the word. Of this world, he had nothing. But it was true, he was immeasurably enriched. And there is something really authentic about that feeling. And it's so easy for us, and it's so easy in, in, in marriage and with, with family, it's so easy to begin to develop a poor us, we're suffering, we don't get the treats everybody else gets mentality. And there's, you've just got to face that. There's a lot of reality to that. But let's come back to the Lord and ask for grace to rejoice in what we do have. Let's ask him to make us so aware of the truth of what Paul says the Lord Jesus said, that there is a blessing in this that is unparalleled, that we gain immeasurably by giving. How does a believer get to the point in life where they see life as Paul did as he spoke here about his legacy? Well, the last thing today, the core of his gospel ministry. And obviously I'm going now to verse 24. Where Paul looks back at it all. And he says. I do not account my life. Of any value. Nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. In the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel. Of the grace of God. How were the Ephesian elders. To embrace this gospel lifestyle. How were they to take it on. That's what we want isn't it. We, we, we want to leave a legacy that honors the Lord Jesus and we want to see others embracing a gospel-shaped life. What are we to make of it? Well, as we think about this text, we just need to be clear that Paul doesn't mean that he thinks his life is cheap. Not for a minute. He knew that every moment of every day was a gift from God. This is not a reflection on low self-esteem when he says, I consider my life of no importance. He's not suicidal, nor does he not care what happens in his life. No, what we discover here is that the core of a gospel-shaped life, Paul, as it were, had different fuel in his tank. Now, that's something we're all going to have to get used to if we drive our cars uh, most of us still have petrol or diesel engines, I guess. Some might have hybrid, uh, where you have uh, partly petrol, partly uh, battery-powered. But what strikes me about the fuel on which Paul ran for the Christian life is that he wasn't—he didn't have a hybrid fuel system. He didn't—he wasn't partly fueled by a desire for God's glory and by the desire for an easy life. He didn't switch between the two. When he said in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may, let's say 22, 24, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. He was talking about living a life that was completely flown from a desire for the glory of God. Now what happens if you try to build a, to be a hybrid Christian? Wanting to serve the Lord Jesus very genuinely. 
But, instead of taking no thought for your life in this world, as Paul speaks about and making no account of it, taking much thought for your life in this world, what happens is that you live a very confused Christian life. And we have an example of that in chapter 21. Paul Paul has spoken already in the verses that we read, verses 22 and 23, of how the Holy Spirit testifies to him of imprisonment and afflictions that await him. And later, when he's staying at the home of Philip in Caesarea, Agabus arrives down in chapter 21. Have a look at verse 11 of Acts 21. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, all that happened there was that the Holy Spirit again confirmed to Paul the sense that he had and what he'd already been talking about. But notice how it was applied by the Lord's people. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. All credit to Luke for not saying there in verse 12, when they heard this, they and the other people there, he includes himself in it. He says, I was one of the voices. He joins with the locals in pleading with Paul to avoid the suffering that will come as he takes the gospel to Jerusalem. And they do that because they love the Lord. There's no doubt about that. But actually, deep in their hearts, they place a higher value on life on li- life and liberty now than on gospel opportunity. That's the testimony of verse 12. We urged him not to go to Jerusalem. They plead with Paul not to risk his life, not to risk his liberty. Now, we have a delicate balance that we've got to strike here if we're going to be biblical. Not for a moment should we think that Paul puts no value on a quiet, safe life. Isn't that, after all, exactly what he calls Timothy to pray for in 1 Timothy 2? You know, when he says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing to God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So Paul, it's not that he has attaches no value to a quiet, orderly life, peaceful, godly, dignified. There are enormous blessings in a life like that. But these things are not the ultimate shape of a gospel-shaped life. So in chapter 21, they urged him not to go. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that's what chapter 20, verse 24 means. That's what Paul means when he says, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Timothy, pray for a quiet life. Pray for leaders who will be gracious about the gospel. Pray for opportunities. Pray for liberty. Pray for these blessings. And for thousands of years in our culture, we've had that. Hundreds of years, at least. We've had that. But it's not our entitlement. 
And it's not the ultimate thing Paul shows us here. The world will try to persuade us to treasure above all a quiet life. I find that is probably one of the biggest temptations nowadays. It's just the temptation, not not to some kind of horrendous overt sin, but just to a quiet life. And what we discover from Acts 21 is that some believers will also encourage you to have a quiet life, as they did Paul. But he said, I count my life of no not of any value, nor as precious to myself. So that's not an effort on Paul's part, going back to verse 24. That's not an effort to gain a reputation as a seriously committed gospel worker. When he says these words, he's not trying to big himself up. It's not an excuse for neglecting your family, as we talked about last night, the danger of doing that. It's not a, it's not a proof text for never taking time off. We joked about the bank holiday thing, but it's not a proof text for saying, I don't matter I don't, nothing matters with me. I I never take time off. It's not a proof text for that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, to be able to say, I do not account my life of any ultimate value nor as precious to myself, that's ultimate reality for ultimate decisions that sometimes have to be made. And that was what was at the core of his gospel life and ministry. So what would it look like then as we finish this off this morning? Well, not accounting the things that happen to you as of any ultimate value, nor as precious to yourself, means at least along these lines that you don't take much thought for your life in this world and how things go for you in your life in this world because you know ultimately your life in this world is not the thing that's going to shape eternity. It might shape it for others as you reach out to them. But you know that the shape of your life in this world is not how it's going to be when we're with the Lord. So if life is going really well, you're thankful for that. But you know it doesn't matter much. It's not ultimate. And if life isn't going very well, you hope and pray it will improve. But you also know, as you serve with tears and trials, that it's not ultimate. If you're really well thought of, well, that's nice. But it's not ultimate. It's not really significant. If you are disliked and rejected, it's unpleasant. But again, it's not ultimate. It's not the final truth about you. If you have great wealth and possessions, you're grateful for these things. But you also know, if you know the gospel, these are not ultimates. They're not really about your value. If you have precious little, to use the Hebrew term that we translated in Glasgow as hee-haw, if you've got next to nothing, well, that can be very tough, and we're not underestimating that. But we also know that it's not an ultimate condition. If you find in your ministry that doors open for you, And you go through them, that's a great encouragement. But you also know that can change, it's not ultimate. If doors slam in your face and you're going through a season of real discouragement and pain at the start of this new year and hearing about all these other ministries and you feel that what's happening to you is that you're just collapsing in on yourself, that is very painful and get with people and pray with them and get encouragement. But also know that it's not ultimate. 
if you're famous or unheard of, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. If people notice you, if you're the kind of person to whom people flock, the minute you walk into a room, if you're that kind of person, it doesn't really matter. Even if you're completely invisible and you feel nobody would care if you were there or not, that's a horrible experience. But it's not ultimate reality. It's not all there is. If you've died with Christ and live with him, all of these things and a million other things that you could add to the list don't ultimately matter much. And I take these examples from an article I read and I've added to it. But if you do that, you'll discover it's true in the great scheme of things for which we live. In the eternal scheme of things for which we live. All the stuff of life that everybody else worries about and feels happy or sad with or without, the stuff we tend to imagine defines us is actually meaningless. It just doesn't matter. It just blows away. And when we sit loose to the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things as Jesus speaks of them, then we're free at the core of our lives to live for what matters and what lasts forever. And I think that's what Paul meant when he spoke these words. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, the way things are going for me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. So as we meet Paul on the beach, we don't get the sense that he regrets his life and work. And if we make them our own priorities and build our lives upon these foundations, then by the grace of God, we won't regret them either, sisters and brothers. We began our conference on Monday in John 6 with that picture of Andrew saying to the Lord Jesus, to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I want to finish now by reading verse 32 from this passage this morning in Acts 20. Where Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. As you spend your life, sisters and brothers, building up others, reaching out with the gospel, it's able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So our gracious God, how we thank you for the ups and downs of the life of the Apostle Paul, for the tears and the trials that are so recognizable to us. How we thank you, wonderful Lord Jesus, for the way that you have ordered and superintended sovereignly all of these events to encourage us here today at Whitemoor to live for eternal and ultimate realities. To sit loose to the things that the rest of the world will tell us define us and are all important. Father, open the eyes of our heart that we may see the hope to which you've called us. Help us to be built up in the word of your grace even as we seek to build others up for your glory. And in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.